Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're continuing the book The Wind Calls the Tune by Stanley Smith and Charles Violet. This is the seventh part of the reading and we're on chapter eight. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for five dollars a month, you can not only support the podcast, but also get access to exclusive Patreon only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 8. Halfway Heaven After the port captain, doctor and customs had finished their various duties with the utmost courtesy, the pilot, who had come out to us, came aboard and placed his dinghy at our disposal, an act of simple kindness which we appreciated very much. It seemed strange to disembark from the Nova, step into a dinghy and leave her behind, Our first few steps ashore were like those of a couple of drunks. We had used our legs very little in the last month, and our equilibrium had been adjusted to the constant motion and extremely confined space of the boat. Our first job was to find the consular agent and report to him all our troubles. We asked some of the men standing around if they could tell us the way to his house, but they shrugged their shoulders, smiled and uttered something in Portuguese. We wandered from group to group, always meeting the uncomprehending shrug, when suddenly, from behind us, a voice with a real Yankee nasal twang said, Say, you boys, can I help you? We spun round and saw a short, chubby little man, looking very spruce in a light tan tropical worsted suit and cream-coloured Nassau hat. We told him what we wanted to do, and he volunteered to take us there himself. We asked him what part of the US he came from, and he replied that he had never left the islands in all his life, but that he had learned to speak English from American whalers who had visited his father when he was a boy and introduced himself as Mr. Lucas. He turned out to be a very kind and useful friend to us, although he gave us a few surprises. He looked 50, but actually he was over 70. He also took a dip in the sea every day, summer and winter, no matter how bad the weather. We found Mr. Collins, the consular agent, very helpful. He offered to arrange a crane to lift the Nova out. He seemed a bit nonplussed when we told him we had no money, but agreed to advance some on the strength of an urgent cable to Mrs. Violet for funds. When we returned to England, we found that she had had great difficulty in cabling out money, the officials saying that it wasn't necessary. Mr. and Mrs. Collins gave us dinner that night. Our enormous appetite must have caused some amazement, for halfway through the meal, our hostess went into the kitchen for a quick conference with the cook, and an extra course appeared, a large cold roast of beef. We drank the local wine during dinner and found it excellent. Our expectations from those green vineyards we had seen earlier in the day were fully realised. Late that night, we went aboard the Nova, and in peace and quiet, We had ten hours of dead man slumber. The next morning, we walked about the sunny streets of Horta. The fascination of the mosaic pavements kept our heads down for a while, but soon we were gazing with delight at the sights the old town offered. The houses and shops were gaily coloured washed, and all along the waterfront were graceful palms growing in a garden of tropical and temperate zone flowers, their vivid tints blazing in the strong sun. 
Tawny, patient oxen pulled heavy, primitive, solid-wheeled carts slowly along, while mules, straw-hatted to protect them from the sun, hauled the lighter vehicles. In and around this old-world picture were some young people on bicycles, while the few motor-taxis honked their horns as though impatient at progress being held at bay by the past. Our legs soon began to ache, so we sat down in some wicker chairs shaded by large umbrellas outside a hotel. There we drank passion fruit juice and soda, as suggested by one of the friendly cable and wireless staff. After our month's stormy voyage, this seemed the stuff of which dreams are made. We decided to go back to the boat for lunch to save the slender stock of money advanced to us. When we had nearly finished our meal, we heard a hail from the quay, and on looking out we saw the consular agent who was beckoning us to come ashore. We scrambled into the dinghy and were soon on the quay. Here we were introduced to a Mr. Byron Morehouse, who very generously offered us the hospitality of his bungalow while we were having the repairs done. We gratefully accepted, for it would give us a change and also help us recover some of the weight we had lost in the last month, for he had a wonderful cook. He took us up to his bungalow, and what a lovely situation it had. Looking over the top of Horter, we could see across the channel to Pico with its usual crown of cloud. On the right were seven of the tallest Norfolk pines we had ever seen. To the left were a couple of twisted cypresses, looking almost black against the bright blue of the sky. The lawn in front of the bungalow was surrounded with flowers at the back of which were bushes of hibiscus, oleander, and poinsettia. We crossed the lawn and entered the vegetable garden, which sloped down behind the flowering shrubs. Here, banana, lime, and orange trees were growing in company with those hardier companions of the northern climes, apples and plums. The rich, black, volcanic soil of the garden produced such vegetables as eggplants, peas, yams, beans, potatoes, three crops a year, and numerous other vegetables of both temperate and tropical climes, at an almost incredible rate and quantity. Inside the house it was cool, comfortable, and so wonderfully kept by Marcia, the general factotum, that the floors looked like mirrors which reflected the narrow shafts of sunlight coming through the chinks in the jealousy blinds. At dinner that night we drank pink pico wine and heard how the Tsar of Russia used to send ships specially to the Azores every year for a supply because he would drink no other. We agreed with his discerning palate. Our host also told us that Edward Alcard had stayed with him on his return voyage, and we had a first-hand account of the lovely stowaway who could write poetry that seemed inspired. The next day, our third in the islands, we went to see Captain Lara, the port captain, to find out whether we could hire one of the small quayside cranes to lift out the Nova. He said that he would be only too willing to place a crane at our disposal, and also lent us several men from his staff. But he added all the cranes were busy that day, and he would arrange it all for tomorrow. We thanked him very much for his kindness and thought of a whole day on Brian's veranda, enjoying the view, enjoying the flowers and the trees, but most of all, enjoying the wine. So without thinking of delay and hurricanes, we hurried back to the bungalow. We must have looked odd amongst the respectably dressed Portuguese, 
for we each had on a pair of Brian's khaki shorts, no socks and a pair of canvas shoes. White singlets covered our upper halves. We wondered why all the girls looked at us and giggled, thinking they were possibly amused by our appearance. We learned later, however, that all the girls of Horta were toying with the idea of copying Allcard's stowaway. The size of the boat must have put them off. In any case, a mouse would have found it difficult to conceal itself for long aboard the Nova. The day passed away as we sat on the veranda, and the cool evening breeze drove us indoors to browse among the books in Brian's library. That evening, a messenger arrived with a letter from the president of the Amor de Patria, a beautiful sports club giving us a most cordial greeting and making us honorary members while we stayed at Horta. We were greatly impressed by all the many kindnesses shown to us, while the old-world courtesy and elegant, extravagant mode of address often had us fumbling for a suitable reply. The following morning, we hurried down to the port captain and found everything ready for the Nova to be hoisted out. There were eight or nine men, all neatly dressed in naval uniform, and in charge of them was the chief pilot. We seemed to be in the way more than anything else, and as we couldn't speak the language, we gave up trying to help. Numerous hands make light work, and in less than an hour, the Nova was out of the water and swung round onto the quay, and we were gazing up at the cause of our change in plans, the rudder. We could see the pin that had sheared and realised that it must have received an exceptionally hard blow for it to be cut through so cleanly. The effect of the damage was that the rudder was lying loose behind the rudder post, free to hinge as it pleased, as the boat rolled or heeled over in the seas. With such an encumbrance under the hull, we felt we had been miraculously lucky in getting the Nova safely into port, with only a makeshift rudder and the sails to help her steer a course. We borrowed some tools from the Fayal Coal and Engineering Company and set to work. The old pin had to be drilled out with a hand brace. This proved to be hard work and we took it in relays with a man that the company had sent down to help us. We decided to have a larger pin to replace the old one and generally to strengthen up all parts of the rudder. In spite of the fact that everything seemed adequate, we didn't want a repetition of the same trouble. By dusk, we had everything dismantled, and at the suggestion of the mechanic, we decided to have a welding job done where the shaft which went up into the cockpit joined the rudder. This would make it very strong and absolutely solid. Our friendly helper took the parts to be welded to the workshop on his way home. We went back to the bungalow, put on our shore-going togs, and in the company of the consular agent, his wife and some friends, went to a wonderful meal at the Amor de Patria. The next few days were spent in refitting the rudder, recorking the cabin sides where the new wood had shrunk a little in the hot sun, and buying some fresh anti-fouling at a price that staggered us. We then painted the bottom, and with all our friendly helpers once more in attendance, put the Nova Espero back into her natural element. Finally, we put up the mast and bent on the sails. Upon checking the rest of our gear, we noticed that our sea anchor had chafed badly in several places. A terrific strain is put on this important piece of equipment in a gale, for as each large wave forces the boat back, the whole weight comes onto the sea anchor and rope. The fear of hurricanes was again in our minds, for if we should meet one, 
our chances of survival might depend entirely on the efficiency of the sea anchor. Here, once more, our friend Mr Lucas helped us. He knew a sailmaker who could be guaranteed to do a good job, and we took the sea anchor to him. As it wouldn't be ready until the following morning, we decided to accept a kind offer from a member of the staff of Cable and Wireless to motor us up to Fayal's famed crater. In 1867, a violent eruption took place and one-fifth of the island was covered in lava. The crater is one of the largest and most symmetrical in the world, being five miles in circumference. The drive up was beautiful. The sides of the road were lined with hydrangeas and trees of every climb. As we neared the top, the macadamised road gave way to a dirt track, and the air became much cooler for we were now over 3,000 feet above sea level. We stopped at a shrine at the edge of the track, got out of the car and walked the few remaining feet to the edge of the crater. What an amazing spectacle met our eyes. The sides seemed nearly perpendicular, the black rock horribly torn and twisted. A thousand feet below us was the bottom now covered with grass and pools of water, with the aid of binoculars we could see sheep. There must have been a track down, but we didn't attempt to find it. Turning our backs on that incredible crater, we gazed at the scene below, a panoramic view of sea, sun and islands. The 3rd July was to be our day of departure, but when the navigator came to check the chronometer, he found it had stopped although it had been fully wound 12 hours previously, it was rushed to a watchmaker who said that the balance wheel spindle was broken, but he could have another made and fitted by tomorrow. So it was on the 4th of July, Independence Day, that we managed to tear ourselves away from the enchantment of the islands. At 4pm, Captain Lara with our kind host Brian gave us a tow out of the harbour and after farewells and good wishes, we were soon alone sailing along the south coast of Fayal heading west for New York. Sodat Azores. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. That's patreon.com forward slash the mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>